You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. The great Protestant theologian Karl Barth once instructed pastors to preach with the Bible in one hand and the newspaper in the other, which is a harder prescription to fill than it might initially seem. Our temptation is always to go to one extreme or the other, to define our lives entirely by the daily stream of news, or to disconnect from it out of disgust and fear. And things have gotten even worse in the 21st century, when we're inundated with presentations and falsifications of the news of the day, or more accurately, the news of the minute. I'm Michael Farmer. Our guest today on Christian Humanist Profiles is going to teach us how to stop doom scrolling and how to have a healthy relationship with the news. Jeff Bilbro is an associate professor of English at Grove City College and the editor of the Front Porch Republic. His latest book is called Reading the Times, A Literary and Theological Inquiry into the News. It's out now from InterVarsity, and I'm delighted it's brought him back to Christian Humanist Profiles today. Nice to talk to you again, Jeff. It's good to talk with you too, Michael, but I'm afraid you've overpromised uh, what I can what I can solve in the next uh, hour discussion, but it'll I, be fun to talk with you. I thought about saying he's going to try to teach us how to yeah, I like that better. make some suggestions, at least. <laughs> um, most of your work has dealt with localism and nature. You've been on this show to talk about two of your other books. Reading the Times in that sense is a is, is a small departure uh, from your from your normal topics. How did you come to decide to write this book? Yeah, that's a good question, and you actually are equipped to recognize that it is a departure in some ways. You know, I've talked to a lot of people who who this is all they know of my work, uh, and it, and I think on the surface it is very different. But my, I guess in my mind, the way it makes the the, the through line that connects this project with my previous writing on Barry and on um, eco criticism is the the focus on I guess community and how these kind of digital um, media based communities can oftentimes act as surrogates for the loss of embodied local communities um, and so thinking about you know how how can we belong to one another uh, in better ways online kind of flowed from my previous work thinking about um, good communities that were connected to their places and in healthy relationships with uh, the non-human world too. So do you, do you see this as an extension of your previous work or a detour? Like, is, is this going to be something that, that informs your work going forward? Yeah, I guess. The, yeah. I mean, both. I, I think in some ways it is an extension. In some ways, the other part of the story, I guess, is, this is a more um, accessible and explicitly theological version of a more scholarly book project that I'm about uh, one third of the way done with or so, um, which is just on 19th century uh, literary authors' responses to shifting print culture uh, based on the industrialization of the printing press and steam-powered printing and the kind of explosion of print media 150 years ago. So I've been working on that uh, on the background pretty much ever since grad school. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. And, and just in the, once I finished my latest Barry book, then I kind of turned my attention there. So like in this, this new book, the chapter on Thoreau, some of the work on Frederick Douglass, uh, some of the references kind of flow out of that research. But now that this one's done, I'm, I'm turning my attention back to it. So, you know, maybe I could be back on profiles in about six or eight years when that one's done. <laughs> I don't know. You, you work so fast. Um, 
you, you, you've got so many books out already. I, I figure you'll have two or three more done before you finish that one. <laughs> it's, it's possible. I was going to say that this is more practical than your other work, but your the book you wrote with Jack Baker, um, Wendell Berry and Higher Education, that's a very practical book as well. It seems like maybe you're, you're kind of going back and forth between a, a more scholarly approach and a more practical approach. Yeah, and it's, you know, I... It's easier for me, I think, to write a straight-up scholarly book. I'm very comfortable in that format, and I enjoy it. But I, you know, my parents are always like, Jeff, what's the point? And uh, my friend's like, Jeff, you you just got to, you know, what's the payout? So I think that's been good for me, and it it is a challenge to try to think, okay, how does this matter in the lives of, you know, everyday people here and now? And so I, I, I would like to, I guess, um, respond to those questions in my writing in the future, but uh, we'll see if I can pull it off. It's definitely kind of stepping out of my comfort zone, but hopefully it's, um, it's a healthy challenge as well to kind of apply scholarship and the ideas side of things to how does this cash out in the way that we live day to day. The, the philosopher A.C. Grayling talks about how he, he feels like he has a responsibility for every scholarly book he writes to write a popular book as well, that the academic has this dual responsibility to the academy and to the, the world at large. I don't agree with very much that A.C. Grayling says, but um, I thought that was pretty spot on. Yeah, I think that's true. And I think, you know, it, both in the church and out of the church, um, scholars and sort of quote unquote elites can get disconnected from the broader community that they might have a responsibility to be in conversation with. And so I think uh, as an academic, you know, one of the the, the typical way that translation works is in the classroom, right, where you're taking these ideas and you're talking to students face to face and helping them wrestle with it. And oftentimes our writing doesn't engage that so much. But I, I think maybe it would be helpful if more academics took the the mental energy required to try to bridge that chasm. Uh, maybe we would have a less bifurcated political discourse if that were the case. Yeah, well, and uh, people might actually read your books. You might make a little bit of Right. Money. I mean, I, you know, you mentioned you've had me on profiles to talk about my previous books, uh, for which I was grateful for. Um, but, you know, most of my academic books, uh, I did about two interviews or three interviews uh, for, you know, and they get reviewed in a couple uh, academic journals. But this one I've done, I don't know, dozens of interviews and, uh, you know, there's been tons of reviews. So it, as a writer, it is kind of gratifying to to get actual feedback from readers. Right. Yeah. There's this weird table of values in academia where the more popular something is, the less the less credibility it gets you. Unless, unless you're <laughs> right. unless you're a poet or something, you know, then, you know, Billy Collins will never, never have trouble getting an academic position. But if you're doing literary criticism, writing the popular book isn't going to get you anywhere closer to tenure. Yeah, which is kind of odd. And so, yeah, I think it, it's helpful, though, to kind of break out of that academic uh, prioritization and think, OK, what what is my vocation as an academic and how can I make this work serve the broader community? Whether that's again, I think I still think of teaching as kind of the primary arena where that plays out. But but maybe uh, writing is another one of those opportunities to to reach a broader audience. We should probably talk about the actual book, huh? I guess so. Well, you you open your introduction with the new slogan of the Washington Post adopted after the election of Donald Trump in 2016, democracy dies in darkness. And I went this morning and they still got that up at the top of their website. 
Uh, how is that a misleading slogan when we're talking about news in the 21st century? Yeah, I think they're, you know, and a lot of media kind of took that man- mantle in uh, in the Trump era. And I think it's a little bit too um, self-congratulatory on the media's part, right? That if we just have more uh, deep researched essays and just shine more sunlight on, you know, politics, then everyone will see the true truth and we'll all be on the same page and all these disagreements will uh, evaporate. And I think, you know, the re- reality is kind of more complicated than that. And we have so much information right now. So, e- you know, fact checking and publishing more exposés, uh, it only gets you so far. And at a certain point, more information doesn't lead to greater wisdom or understanding of, of the reality or certainly doesn't lead to agreement, you know, sort of consensus across um, political or ideological divides. So, yeah, I, I think uh, good reporting is important. I, I think it has a vital role to play. But um, I think I say in that book, you know, in that introduction, that that democracy can also die in the or, or you know evaporate in the bright lights of too much media, especially the the kind of media that often gets the most clicks. You know, the the kinds of stories that go viral about uh Jeff Bezos going up to outer space or you know what celebrity did yesterday. So I think we need to be more discerning I guess about which kinds of stories actually serve democracy and the common good and the church and which kinds um just serve to distract and polarize us. I suppose every profession thinks of themselves as the most important people in the world. I know a lot of academics do, but uh, when journalists do it, it's a little bit like when actors do it. It makes me it makes me particularly nauseated. Yeah, I, I would yeah, say a- journalists are a lot like vultures. the The ecosystem needs them, but doesn't mean I want one living in my backyard. Yeah, and and I think you know I, it's tricky because on the one hand. There are some people, I'm sure you're aware of this, who, you know, kind of put the media in quotes or, or the mainstream media usually and just say they're the source of all evil. And I don't want to do that. I don't think that's fair. Um, but on the other hand, yeah, it, you listen to a few of these uh, journalists talk about how important their vocation is for uh, democracy. And uh, I can see why people don't trust the media. So I guess kind of the extremes on both sides, I think, are are getting at a real truth, but neither is complete and that the media might be necessary, but it's certainly not sufficient for a healthy democratic discourse. Well, and that, that seems, that seems to me to be what's important about this book is it's trying to shoot down that middle where you're not, you're not hitting either one of those sides. Yeah, that's definitely my aim, you know, and it's it's not easy. It's not easy in today's discourse to pull that off. And I don't know if I did it. You know, some reviewers think that I go too, you know, too light on their uh, political enemies. So I don't know. But that's my goal, because I'm I don't think either side is. Uh, yeah, is fully accurate. Well, I, I have to say, I mean, I, I have a sense of your political commitments, but I don't think that if I read this book, I would like I, I don't think I don't think your particular partisan politics comes out in this book enough to 
enough for me to think that you're going light on one side or the other because the the, the point seems more structural than anything else it's how do we yeah, deal well, with hey. whatever the content is how do we deal with the the presentation of it with the the the, the medium i guess yeah that's exactly my aim so it's very gratifying for you to say that hopefully it's true <laughs> Well, our listeners who are familiar with your previous work won't be surprised at all to see that Henry David Thoreau is one of your guiding lights here, and particularly his essay, Life Without Principle, which I had not read. Uh, Thoreau's great phrase is the, and you're going to have to help me with the pronunciation, macadamized? I think it's uh, macadamized. Yeah, macadamized minds. But if you say about, uh, if you say macadamized, you can't make a joke about nuts. So I'm going to say macadamized. What does that, what does that term mean? Uh, what, what does it mean for our, our minds to be macadamized or macadamized? Yeah. So there was a Scottish uh, road engineer in the late uh, early 19th late 18th century who developed this road technology that was just before him uh, usually roads kind of started off with big rocks and as you got to the surface they would get smaller and smaller and he he discovered that if you just use only small stuff uh, it actually withstands the freeze thaw cycle better so that was a lot of the roads in america were built with these this technology and uh, I actually include a little picture in the book so you can get a sense of this. I mean, the, the road engineers would be out there with like calipers making sure that no rocks over, you know, X number of centimeters or inches um, got included. And Thoreau's point in that essay is that when we and this is, you know, when you when you read that essay or teach it to students, it's so remarkably prescient. Um, it's it's like he's writing about our social media moment because he's right he talks about how when we attend to trivial things repeatedly our minds get kind of broken apart into these macadamized bits into these little little tiny chunks and um we're not able to hold on to any major commitments or major ideas because we're just flitting from distraction to distraction i mean it's it's kind of like the argument that nick carr makes in the shallows um but in a different a different uh, metaphorical key. And one of the reasons I like Thoreau's road metaphor is because it, make, it allows him to make that point that he makes in the essay, which is once our minds have been broken up by this, these sort of mental habits, they become unable to offer resistance to the ideas that politicians or marketers or anybody else wants to send spinning down down the channels of our minds. So, you know, if uh, advertising slogans or political mantras, they just they sound good because we're not trained anymore to wrestle with ideas in any kind of sustained way. So I, I think that's one of the major dangers of allowing ourselves to uh, to be formed by the yeah, by these kind of social media style um media ecosystems yeah it it strikes me as essential to this point that so much of what passes for political discourse on facebook and twitter are slogans sometimes in all caps repeated for 240 280 characters yeah. yep. right right and 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 memes which are often just slogans with repeated pictures like they it it seems like our minds have been chopped up enough to where that's the only that's the only means of making an argument that still appeals to us. 
Yeah, and what I think is really troubling is the ways that 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 dominant mode of discourse then kind of colonizes the other modes too. So when a when a senator or legislator is getting up to make a speech, they have to think, okay, what's the you know the 90 second or the 45 second soundbite that can be excerpted from this that can go viral on Instagram or whatever, right? Or, or when you're on uh, TV, you know they have the the, the live tweets or the tweetable bits from the speeches. So even even the forms of discourse and, and some, you know all these negotiations, they have to think, okay, what is what's the base going to tweet about this? So even these kinds of dialogue that you know at least theoretically can happen outside the strictures of social media get reshaped by that broader environment, and it's really toxic for um, nuance for kind of partial agreement, right? Uh, well, I agree with a lot of things about this slogan, but I have some serious reservations to or qualifications. And you, you can't, you know, it's like with the CRT thing today, right? Uh, critical race theory. You can't have a nuanced position on that, right? Either you're like 100% for it or you think racism doesn't exist. And right. <laughs> it's so hard to, to have any other view out there. It's crazy. Right. Right. Well, yeah, you see it all the time in the way and I hate to pick on the Southern Baptist, but I was raised Southern Baptist, so I'm going to do it anyway. <laughs> you, you see it in a way that anybody who criticizes anything about the Southern Baptist Church is an enemy of the Southern Baptist Church. Like yeah. uh, people treat poor Karen Swallow Pryor as if she's some sort of arch liberal or Rachel Den Hollander is trying to dis right. destroy the church. But it's, it, it, has, it must have something to do with the way we think in in slogans and sound bites, um, but because it, it, it doesn't allow you to recognize that people... Um, people can have partial points, like you said, that, that people can critique something without wanting to destroy it. Yeah. And I think part, you know, I talk later in the book, too, about this kind of uh, winner take all uh, mentality. I, mean, I think I quote the Trump speech where he says, you know, you're going to get so tired of winning. Most um, people winning all the time. And and there's just this kind of obsession with like winning the political battle of the day. That, that I think our ecosystem also encourages. And so I think that plays into the phenomenon you talk to where um, it, it's like we have to have these clear sides and you're either with us or you're against us. And I think I see that uh, pretty much across the political spectrum. So it, it's it's really hard to have dialogue when when it's so binary. Right. Well, I think to some extent, those slogans aren't really meant to be arguments at all they're not even really meant sure. to be agreed with or disagreed with it's just like a it's it's a it's a on the one hand a flag you put up and on the yep. other hand it's a post you beat other people with yeah and this gets to the kind of third part of the book too about um identity and belonging you know that these kind of slogans become really part of our very our sense of who what which community we belong to and how we understand ourselves in the world and so uh it's also then we take it personally when somebody disagrees with our uh, political or cultural uh, slogan that we happen to subscribe to instead of, you know, thinking, hey, I can I can still, uh, you know, in the, in the Christian context, I can still be a fellow member of the body of Christ with this person, even if we happen to disagree about, you know, the marginal tax rate or something. Uh, <laughs> but but it's hard for us to do that anymore. Right. Right, although you know you you don't hear as many uh, arguments about the marginal tax rate anymore. Yeah, I, I guess that's kind of a maybe the two thousands argument or something. Well, you, I, I think you you used it maybe because it's um, 
it is less it it's less hot button right because yeah on you would probably be much less comfortable with saying um i can i can be a member of the body of christ with this person even though they're a bigot right because if i say that you know we disagree about say immigration policy uh or any any number of other things today you know well yeah then then you're it might be labeled racist or something um and and then beyond the pale right yeah and so we're back to the slogans not even really being they're almost not even words you know they're like uh they're like pictures made up of letters in some ways badges yeah yeah and that hence hence what you said earlier about the memes right they sort of that's that's the unit of thought now i mean barry has wendell barry has this line in standing by words i think where he says that a sentence is a unit of thought um and it's a way of making sense perceptible i know in his in his writing classes apparently he would sometimes assign his students to uh to write he would put a question on the board about the text of the day and they would have to write a one sentence answer and he would give them like 15 or 20 minutes uh and then i guess he would tear apart their sentences um, and I think, you know, it's kind of a, it's a, it seems idiosyncratic, but I think that emphasis on constructing a sentence that carefully subordinates and relates different ideas and different, um, different, seemingly disparate things and puts them in, in relationship in the right way is a difficult skill. It's hard. Um, and, and we lose that skill when we think only in memes or slogans. So we're, we're actually losing the ability to to think when we participate in this uh, toxic ecosystem. So there's my connection to nature, Michael. See, it all <laughs> hangs together. <laughs> yeah, well, you, you just get ecosystem in there as much as you can. I do that. That's too. right. I mean, it's such a great, you know, that's that's the standard metaphor from Marshall McLuhan or Postman. And I think it really is the right way to think about these problems because, yeah, otherwise we can think too much about. Um, I mean, I think individual responsibility is crucial, important, as you know, I mean, in the in the book, most of my suggestions are things that individuals can do. But I think we can't understand the problems on an individual level, even if even if we can begin working towards solutions as individuals and members of our local communities i think a lot of people tend to think of the social world as a 8-bit nintendo game uh in that when you kill the boss all the boss's henchmen just kind of disperse <laughs> and if you think of it as an ecosystem it doesn't really work that way you get you get yeah. rid of the quote-unquote boss if you get rid of the apex predator there's all sorts of other problems that pop up because everything is exactly dependent exactly To change the subject, <laughs> unless you want to talk about 8-bit Nintendo games, I'm happy to do that. Uh, I can't. I, that's, you've already uh, exceeded my knowledge of that technology. I, I, I thought I might have. Yeah. <laughs> we used to hear about the attention economy all the time. I haven't heard that phrase in in a long time. But I, what I gather from your book is that our understanding of the news is a matter of the attention economy, of directing our attention and having our attention directed by... Uh, larger, more shadowy forces? Yeah, I mean, you know, clearly the attention economy and the whole discussion is bigger than just the news, but certainly part of the news is what is um, what is newsworthy? What should we be 
paying attention to right now. And it's, it's different. You know, there, it's a whole wild west right now about how our attention gets directed regarding the news because all these kinds of legacy institutions are weakening or shifting. Right. So even the Washington Post, which which we began with, um, I, I suppose they still have a print paper, but I ha- I'm not sure I've ever seen the print version of the Washington Post. Right. I, I encounter it uh, online or through my my Twitter feed. So um, they have to, you know, it's, it's no longer like some editor or some group of editors in an office decides to lay out the day's paper. And here's what's important. Um, now it's like, how can we maximize user engagement and drive a lot of traffic so we can sell ads? Right. So so the whole news um, industry has been reconfigured by the demands, the, the economic demands of the attention economy. So, you know, I think most journalists are not big fans of of that, but it's the reality they have to live with. So it's not like I'm blaming journalists, but um, they have to figure out some way to, to make a living in this this new economy. Well, and so much of it is about making you angry and making you frightened. I A few months yeah. back, I found a plug-in for Twitter that let me get rid of the the trending topics bar. And I found that it really helped my mental health that, that being able to, to see that stuff all the time made me much angrier than I was when I didn't know what was going on in, in the trending topics. When I didn't know what people I didn't follow were talking about, because now there's a lot of stuff that I don't have to hear about stuff that would yeah. only make me angry or disgusted. I mean, the only way that Twitter works for me is that I can use, you know, an app, so there's no images for me and I don't ever see the trending topics. Uh, it's just the straight, the straight feed. And, and then if you curate who you follow pretty carefully, then it can be a, you know, I want to say a great place, but oftentimes it can be a lively place for conversation or, you know, I find, find out a lot of stories I wouldn't find otherwise. But uh, yeah, once, once you kind of, you know, see all the ads that they want to send you and see all the, yeah, the trending topics, it gets a much less friendly place pretty quick. I do block anybody who does a sponsored post. Um, and, and, and once you start doing that, uh, they really run out of people to give you and you start getting some pretty strange sponsored tweets. I like that idea. What What is your news consumption like, Jeff? Do you, do you subscribe to a – I mean, you don't subscribe to the Washington Post. Do you subscribe to some sort of newspaper or do you, do you get it online like the rest of us? Yeah, I mean, I probably listen to and read too much news. Um, so I, I, in some ways, you, I write I wrote the book I needed to read. But yeah, I guess practically, I, I subscribe to a handful of um, quarterly or, or weekly periodicals. And then I subscribe to our local newspaper, which I which I think syndicates some stuff from The Washington Post. Probably. yeah. Um, they're, they're part of that network somehow. And that's, a you know, it's. It's like all local newspapers. It's on hard times, but they have a handful of uh, real reporters in town and they do great work. And that's, you know, especially as someone who's new to the area, um, it's a really important way, I think, of kind of finding your way into a place's conversation. So plus you get the yeah, comics, right? That's right. The crossword that's right. puzzle. Yeah. I so subscribed we that. to and the actually, Minnesota paper for a while and it eventually got it was so expensive and I wasn't reading it. So I stopped subscribing. Yeah. Yeah, this one's relatively affordable. I, I, I'm not sure as we move to PA uh, what the options will be there, but hopefully we can find a local paper. But a lot of places, 
you know, I know don't really have a, a place that actually speaks to the community. You have to have the kind of the right size town that's big enough to sustain one, but um, one that's that's not so big. You're just reading the the news from the big city nearby. Right. So yeah, and actually, I do subscribe to the Washington Post's digital edition. So uh, even though I make fun of them at the beginning, I do give them my subscription. Why don't you pick them instead of the New York Times? Oh man, Michael, now you're asking personal questions. I mean, the New York Times I like, but um, I like some of the columnists. You know, like Ross Douthat, I really appreciate, and they do some really good reporting. But I guess the one thing is the New York Times is more expensive, and the other thing is the New York Times newsroom seems to be pretty much uh, kind of unhealthy. I'll say yeah. unhealthy. It seems, it, and I'm it sure seems the Washington Post too. is not perfect either, but they're at least not quite as crazy as New York Times. But, you know, I often hit my my limit of free articles in the New York Times and think, ah, oh. but then I think, ah, oh, this is good. I don't need to read that story. It's OK. Right. Yeah. Well, you'll just see what people are saying about it on Twitter anyway. Yeah, that's that's all that matters, right? Uh, well, another of your guides here besides Thoreau is the Jewish painter Mark Chagall, uh, specifically his 1933 painting Solitude. How can that painting teach us about contemplation and what does the news cycle do? to contemplation yeah i really love that painting and so it, you know if listeners don't have a i mean I, if they buy the copy of the book they'll see it in the in the book i have to pay pay money to get it printed there so i hope you enjoy it um but if not you can find it online and i would encourage you to look it up it's, it's a really haunting painting and it's made it my my desktop background and uh sort of spent a lot of time over the last few years with that painting because I think Chagall is such a remarkable person and story. And that painting, to me, kind of epitomizes the posture that he invites us to to find um, throughout his painting. And so, you know, if you if you're looking at the painting, what you see is this this Jewish man, apparently kind of cradling these um, these scrolls, which presumably are the scriptures. And in, and uh, in the background, his hometown is burning, right? And and we know from Chagall's biography, you know, he's he's Jewish. Uh, he's watching um, the Jews be driven out of of Europe, and then he himself, indeed, is catches one of the last boats out. Um, and so it's not like he's unaffected by current events, right? He's deeply, um, in many ways, that the news cycle is targeting him. And yet, uh, instead of sort of getting lost in the news cycle and obsessing about it or you know kind of painting things that are totally unrelated right uh moving entirely away from that he's trying to find uh ways in which his tradition and the scriptures might guide him through this this terrible uh historical moment and and i love the the picture of the cow next to the the seated man hold, holding the scrolls because you know that's kind of this image um for rumination on the eternal words of God, right? This this cow that's continually um, chewing the cud, right? Getting getting new sustenance out of what was consumed earlier in the day. And to me, that's that's the call of a Christian that we find ways to reread the scriptures and meditate on them, and um, you know, make find ways to get the daily bread that we need. Um, from these eternal old words. And so uh, I think Chagall's 
painting there, I guess, offers us a way of thinking about or imagining how we might be be rooted in, in the scripture and rooted in the word of God in a way that enables us to inhabit our own place and time wisely and redemptively and well. Can you give a concrete example of what that looks like? I told you this is outside my comfort zone, right? I'm, I'm a, I'm a <laughs> academic first. Um, As a journalist, uh, Jeff, yeah. I have to push you. That's what's so important That's about good. my profession. <laughs> I mean, um, part of it, I think, is in what's important and what's not, right? So if I if I discipline myself to to, to spend time, yeah, reading the Bible, but also um, you know other books and and do kind of more oh perennial or you know long form reading at the start of the day. Then when I do get online or I turn on the radio uh, while I'm doing the morning dishes or something. It, it really relativizes the stories, you know. So I hear that Jeff Bezos, uh, you know, blasted off to space for 10 minutes. And it, it just it seems more absurd than it does like, oh, this is amazing. You know, it just sort of re reprioritizes, I guess, the stories that we see and and hopefully helps me attune to attune different ones. Right. So uh, I think reading the prophets, reading the Gospels makes me more keyed in on stories about uh, the people who might be sort of socially or economically marginalized uh, and, and how my neighbors, my fellow Christians and hopefully neighbors um, are finding ways to, to meet those needs. You know, I think in the book I cite uh, World's, World Magazine's Hope Awards where every every summer they profile all these nonprofits doing various kinds of um, ministry uh, all kinds of ministries. And I think that's such a great example because, you know, there's not usually a news hook, right? It's not like these ministries are in the news per se, but world asks the readers, Hey, who's doing good work in your community? And then they send the, they send the reporter uh, and they, you know, follow the people around and, and talk to the people who are, who are ministering and people who are being ministered to and write it up. And it's, those are always so convicting and inspiring and, um, uh, I think important as I read those, because I think, you know, what of this can I take into my own life? Where, where might God be calling me to serve? So I think one example, I guess, is that it maybe changes which kinds of stories seem important to me. You know, back to back to the Twitter trending things. I don't think the stories that are actually important usually end up trending on Twitter. Right. It's a lot of um, celebrity news and outrage yeah. and. Who's getting canceled and who's doing the canceling? Right. Yeah. Right. And in, in that vein, you you bring up Blaise Pascal and his advocation of sancta indifferentia, holy apathy, uh, toward the events of the day. And I, I can hear the objection, which is that if Christians are apathetic toward the world, they'll be blind to the many injustices of our age, and therefore they'll be our favorite word complicit in them. But that's not what Pascal means by apathy, right? Right. And this, you know, I tried in that section of the book to to respond to these objections. And still, uh, when I talk to people, that's often where I hear the most pushback. But I, I think well, clearly what Pascal thinks is that we should not be disengaged from the conflicts and, um, you know, the, the, the challenges of our day. But he's writing to his brother-in-law and he's saying, look, don't don't care so much about the outcome. 
right? You just worry about uh, being faithful and acting the way that God is calling you to act in this conflict. But remember, you might be getting the message wrong. Uh, maybe. And so, you know, one thing he says is it's it can it's more sure that God is in control of these events and that God wills some people to oppose you than it is sure that you are on the quote unquote right side of this conflict. And I think that's kind of a it's true, I think. And it's kind of a somewhat painful, uh, maybe shocking thing to say that causes us to think, man, how do I know for sure that I'm on the right side? I don't. Uh, so I need to I need to engage it faithfully. I need to, um, you know, be energetic in, in the pursuit and defense of the things that I think are good. But I also have to recognize that I might be wrong and I can be more confident that God is going to work out his will than I can be confident that I'm right. <laughs> so right. Uh, it, it's 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 not saying that we shouldn't care about what's going on, but that we should uh, care more about doing the right thing than about winning. Well, and right, and I think the thing you can say helpful. for sure about God's will is that his will is for you to be holy. Exactly. Not necessarily that his will is for you to win. I mean, obviously Christ, I mean, I think I quote this maybe, but I love the G.K. Chesterton line that uh, the cross cannot be defeated for it is defeat. I mean, you know, even the very moment when God is working out his ultimate victory, it sure looks like defeat to everybody else. Right. Or the, the Tolkien line, which I think you do quote. It's been a month or so since I read your book, but I think you I think you do quote the line about history being a long defeat. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So what are we and so I about? think that, that kind of Christian perspective should free Christians from the kind of outrage and the fear and the the existential uh, sense of importance and crises that can surround the news um, and suck us up and, and should free us from that so that we can attend, you know, from this. Not, not again, not a posture of like, I don't care, it doesn't matter, but but a posture that is more concerned with what faithful action looks like than, you know, oh, no, are we going to lose? Well, right. And in, in that sense, I think the, the kind of contemplation that you're looking for is not the opposite of action. It's the opposite of chattering. I don't, I don't know what you'd call yeah. it. It's the, it's the opposite of what we do on Twitter, which is we, yeah. we have to announce that we have the correct stance on this or else or else what? I don't know. You know, or else history will sweep us aside as it sweeps everybody aside. Yeah, so you're right. I mean, so much of the it's also we have to perform our um, attention to these events. Right. And we actually instead of doing something, we just perform that we care. Right. And I think I can't remember if I said this in this book. I know I said it in my last book because to me it was such a blatant example. But the uh, the ALS ice bucket challenge. You, you do talk about that in this book. Yeah. To me, it's so funny. You know, it's like that is such a like a contagion right of like i have to prove to to all of my friends that i care about this disease that i've never even heard of <laughs> six months ago three months ago right um and like yeah yes i you know i think that's a bad disease and i we should do something about it but but like that is the one cause you know so instead of kind of performing our investment in the news cycle i think it's much more helpful if we root ourselves in the christian story and then you know, think about, try to discern and, and be attentive to the ways that God is calling us to um, to live that out in our own particular spheres of influence or calling. Right. So it's not everyone's going to be called to work on ALS. There's other other ways, other 
news cycles that we might be called to attend to. Well, yeah, and if you are called to work on ALS, it's probably going to be in some way other than how does the, the Xbox challenge is sticking your hands into a bucket of ice for as long as you can. Yeah, or like dumping cold water and get your friends to donate money. I don't know. It's so weird. I'm, I'm going to suggest that that's probably not the way people are called to work with ALS. <laughs> probably not. Uh, Although, you know, th- that was five or ten years ago. It seems so harmless now. Uh, it's true. In comparison to all the other knocks I mean, stuff yeah, on social it's, media. It's not, a, it's not bad, right? I just think that's a, such a fascinating example to me. of, And, and it's old enough now that nobody's you know, hopefully be offended. People, yeah, exactly. Right, where if you if you talk about some of the things that have happened more recently, you're you're going to be on the wrong side of history if you're not. Yeah, that. right. You say that our culture's obsession with the news has to do with its misunderstanding of the two senses of time, kairos and chronos. What do those Greek words mean, and how can sorting them out help us approach the news in a more healthy way? Yeah, so chronos is the more standard sense of time as you know linear quantified duration that that's uh, every day you know is a new a new tick on the clock, and I, and I think in our contemporary culture, you know, we talk about the twenty four seven news cycle, um, daily daily and hourly and moment by moment news. That's all attuned to chronos, right? What's happening right now? And clearly, the the, the word news. Uh, what's new, right? What's, what's happened now that, that wasn't happening yesterday? Um, but there's another way that humans experience time and another kind of phenomenon, I guess, that, that time names, which is kind of time as this dr- drama or cycle. And um, Kairos, in that context, just refers to you know the right time for some action right this is it's the moment when i should be planting seeds or when i should be making breakfast or you know the fruit is ripe at this moment um or in drama right it's the moment of of action it's this sort of prompt to to say or or do something and uh in the bible you know these two different times interact in really interesting ways when Christ is talking about, you know, my hour has not yet come, that's always Kairos, right? The, the moment of where I will be revealed for who I am has not come. And, and then, of course, it does come. Um, and so I guess maybe just to c- continue on this biblical thread, I think the prophets offer one way anyway of seeing how those two times should be related as they try to you know, root themselves in in the Kairos drama of God's work with his people, Israel, and yet also then then speak from that into how this relates to the events of our day. Right. So they're always talking about political issues or cultural or economic problems. Um, but they they try to kind of apply Kairos reality to the Kronos events. But that's, you know, it's it's hard to to occupy that in between place. Is there a public figure you think does that well? Whew. I mean, I, I do think uh, some pastors do it pretty well. You know, I, I think that is in some ways the pastoral, well, to, to the extent that a preacher is sort of in the biblical prophetic tradition, that is kind of their call, right? To to speak from the scripture to the needs of the congregation in front of them. Right, like the Bart quote I started with. Exactly, exactly. So, 
Yeah, I can think, you know, but none, none of the people I'm going to think of are celebrities that people would know, right? It's it's faithful, uh, anonymous pastors doing that work. You know, and I guess there are public figures who do it uh, better. You know, I mean, I think, yeah, but whoever I say is so polarizing, right? Right. <laughs> you just need to say somebody on each side. Wendell Berry. I think Wendell Berry is a great. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean. Who, who could have seen that answer coming? That's right. That's right. But that's you know that's why I uh, I think I, your heroes I was, are your heroes because they're they're praiseworthy right so it's, if you're asked to right. praise somebody you're going to praise your heroes and it's not because right. it's not because you're their partisans you're their partisans because you you think Thank they you. do the thing they do right exactly I'm only saying this because I know everybody who listens to any of these shows is tired of hearing me talk about Gabriel Marcel and I'm not going to do I'm not going to stop talking about him. Right, because that's that's uh, as you say, right? We think that these people have something important to say to this moment, and so we undertake the work of uh, maybe most of us don't do it literally, but of translation, right? right, and application, and trying to to articulate how uh, how what they have to say is is important. I, th- I think you're getting at something like that when you talk about C.S. Lewis's prescription to read an old book for every new book you read. Right, right. That that you know sometimes the paradox is that by stepping out of the moment, um, we can better understand the moment. And of course, um, Alan Jacobs's new book, Breaking Bread with the Dead, in many ways is a kind of riff on that whole idea from C.S. Lewis and kind of unpacking how that works out in at least in Jacobs' experience. Well, Jacobs has a um, very good list of media consumption habits as well somewhere on his website have you read that that's right he does yeah he i mean jacobs has been working on this stuff for quite a while and i think he's he's pretty good about it because he says basically don't look at any kind of daily let alone hourly news sites subscribe to something like the economist that'll give you the news once a week once people have had a chance to think it over yeah then there's you know i think there's a lot of wisdom in that and it's it's certainly probably true uh, certainly, probably it's <laughs> certainly true that I uh, that I spend too much time re- reading things that are new. You know, I, w- I would be better served by even reading less. Yeah, one the part of the problem is our definition of new and old might be very different than Lewis's. If it was yes, written in a living language, true. Lewis probably, <laughs> probably right probably thinks of it as new. Well, it's also worth pointing out Lewis didn't. Lewis did completely disengage from the news, didn't he? That's my understanding. That's a good question, and I don't know how in his, in his own personal life how that worked. That's a good question. I think I heard Holly Ordway talking about that in, in her interview cycle mm, okay. on Tolkien. On Tolkien. Because Tolkien didn't do that, and everybody assumes he did because Lewis did it. Got it. I mean, it, it makes sense because the poor guy was spending half his day uh, answering letters, so how would you also have to read the newspaper? Right, right. Well, we'd probably all be better off answering our email then. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I, I think you'll probably agree that one of the reasons our culture is so obsessed with the news, and particularly with these partisan presentations of the news, because, I mean, that's the thing we haven't talked about, which is that when you're reading the news, you're not just reading the events of what's happened. You're almost always reading somebody's politically informed spin on what's happened but anyway one of the reasons we like that is that attaching our personal stories to that sort of larger political story 
is a way of giving our personal stories meaning. And I, I don't, I don't want to stick my hand in a hornet's nest, but I think last summer with both the George Floyd protests and the mask mandate protests, I, I think you, you definitely saw people attaching, giving their, their lives meaning by attaching them to these bigger stories about freedom or justice or what have you. And again, that doesn't have anything to do with the rightness or wrongness of either of those causes, et cetera. Um, why is that such a dangerous thing, in your opinion, this attaching our personal stories to these big partisan stories? Yeah, I think I think you're right about last summer's events. And I think we just are going to continue to see that play out in different phenomenon because uh, because more and more of us are disconnected from um, the, the kind of traditional uh, structures of meaning and community that once uh, kind of gave people's lives significance, right? So if you're really uh, a member of a extended family and community that's in place and, and the kind of stories that are shared in that community, you know, it's like when your aunt says, oh, I remember when you were two and you did this funny thing, right? And then if if that story is not just like, Oh, I was embarrassed by that as a 13 year old, but then I went to college and moved away and, you know, I'm free from those embarrassments. But if those continue to form part of your life, they can, they, you know, it's kind of annoying sometimes and, and confining, but it also, you're known, right? You're, you're part of this community. And so as more and more of us, and I am including myself here, um, you know, move uh uh, for jobs and other reasons from one place to another, and we don't have those stable communities, then it, there's a real temptation, I think, to to turn to digital communities and oftentimes uh, some kind of political structure, right, on, on the internet or through the social media, and uh, to, to give our lives meaning. And so we tend to think, well, how, maybe... Maybe it's this political movement, you know, uh, whether it be for, yeah, for justice or freedom or, or whatever the case might be. Uh, and so then our news consumption uh, becomes part of the way that we perform and inhabit this identity. And I think that's what can make the news, well, that, that can then lend a kind of toxic energy to the news. So it's not just what's happening today and, and what do I need to know about to to act well and to love my neighbor and to, to be wise. But it's like, uh, you know, what does my identity require of me today in the public sphere? Who, who and, do and I have to hate? Right. And, and that's what's so toxic um, and makes the news really take on a skewed, outsized role in our lives. Well, and one thing we haven't really talked about is there's a lot of people in the news, even the, the quote unquote mainstream media, who are not good actors, right? That there, there are people out there trying to stir stuff up, people who are yeah, lying on absolutely. purpose in order to make money or whatever. Yep. And, and so you end up with this terrible feedback loop where you get your identity from these people who, who are warping you, who are molding you into the image of something horrible to, to take things from you, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I didn't quote this in the book because I hadn't read it yet, but I'm actually think it came out just this summer, too. Um, but this new book, uh, The Social Media Prism, I think it's called. Um, he, this guy, I think his name is Chris Bailey. This is some fascinating work about uh, how people oftentimes don't have very informed political views. 
And then they would do these experiments with them and kind of expose them to, in, the, in this context, in this case, expose them to the politics of their, you know, if they say they're Democrat, they put more Republicans in their feed, social media feeds. And, and the more that they kind of pay attention to politics, the more extreme their views become because, and, and the more invested in them they become, right? It's like that now it's before I was like, I'm kind of politically agnostic. I don't really care. I don't know. And then the more information they get, no, I'm really a hardcore Democrat or hardcore Republican because I, the other side's terrible, right? It's like more information and more time in, in the media can often make that, well, does make that become a larger part of our identity. And that's what's dangerous, I think. One of the interesting things about dealing with a lot of college students is watching their identities shift, sometimes really dramatically. I, I had students when I was a college professor who were very conservative, and I see them now on Facebook, and they're really doctrinaire American liberals. And it's you're, you're inclined to say, oh, well, you know, they were 18, 19 years old, and they've thought this out. And they've changed their opinions. And certainly, I mean, some of them did think it out and change their opinions. Um, but also, I mean, a lot of times it just, it's just the same sort of knee-jerk political positions in a different direction. That's not really a yeah. question, I guess. I'm just... Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I, have, I have observed the same thing. And it's, it's uh, I don't know quite what to make of it. You know, one mm -hmm. of the, one of the things I love about being a teacher is, yeah, is this chance to discuss and think with students who are, are just at that kind of cusp between here's what I've thought because this is what my parents and community and family think. And now I'm being exposed to a wider uh, tradition of thinkers and I get, you know, I get to think through my ideas and that's the part I love, right? The part I don't love is, is when students don't really fully engage that process and are oftentimes frankly lazy um, and, and so as they're kind of exposed to more ideas and more voices and more thinkers, they, it's not like they actually think with them and against them and in conversation with them, it's more like, well, the cool people think yes. these people are, are the right people to quote and these positions are people. And you see, you see this in grad school too, right? Oh, like, yeah. Or in academics, right? It's not like callow freshmen are the chief culprits here. Um, well, I suspect we all do it to one degree or another. Sure. Right? There's positions sure. I'm sure I hold because I admire people who hold them and I haven't really yep. examined them. Yeah, because we're we're finite human beings and we can't have thought out opinions on every issue under the sun. So that's kind of how it works. But but hopefully, you know, I think it works hell in a good way. We we choose heroes who are actually admirable. And, and we belong to those communities that are, are root, rooted and grounded so, so that the kind of social dynamic of cognition um, is a help and not just something that, uh, as you put it, bad actors can exploit or, uh, you know, we're not just sort of caught on these storms of different clashing opinions. Right. I have been steering this conversation so far, but here on Christian Humanist Profiles, in the spirit of hospitality, we'd like to give our guests the final word. What haven't we talked about that you'd like our listeners to know? I guess we, we talked about uh, implicitly near the beginning, but, you know, for me, one of the most enjoyable parts of the book was thinking through um, those practices that I recommend at the end of each section. Like, uh, I think for the community one, I, I say, 
Ah, it's helpful to take a walk, you know, remind yourself. And, and you've actually, Michael, written a beautiful essay on um, the goods of walking even in uh, a place like the suburbs that might not seem uh, picturesque or romantic or idyllic. So so I know I'm speaking to the choir here, but I, I think, disappointed you know, yeah. you didn't quote that essay in your book. Uh, sorry. Too. Sorry. It was there. Um, <laughs> But, you know, yeah, the good of taking a walk and it seems like it's not related to media consumption, but I think it can be a a powerful counter practice. Um, So I I enjoyed kind of thinking through, okay, if these are the problems and these are why they're problems, what's something simple that we can begin doing that, uh, you know, because I, I think there's a lot of structural things that could be done, but I don't have much hope that given our political or social context or disagreements about the good, uh, you know, I, I can't I don't really see uh, Facebook, for instance, being broken up in the next five years. Maybe I'm wrong. Right. Well, who great. knows what would happen if they did break it up? We're back to the, yeah, the video sure game boss problem. Right. You break up exactly. Facebook. It's not like the problem's going to go away. Exactly. The problems are so much deeper. So, you know, where, where are some places that we can start um, as individuals and as families and our churches Right now. So that was a, that for me was enjoyable and it was good for me too personally to think about that and then try to to act on those more intentionally. You know, you recommend not having social media on your phone and I go through periods where I take it off of mine. And I was on one of those periods and I went out of town last week. I went on vacation and I was away from Twitter and Facebook for, you know, 10 days or whatever. And it amazes me anytime I'm away from those things, I think. I shouldn't come back to them. Like, my life is better without them. I'm not happier when I'm on them. I'm, in fact, much happier when I'm not on them. And then when I get back, I fall right back into them. And I I, I find that a fascinating failure in my own spirit. I mean, isn't this uh, sort of the perennial Christian challenge of, I don't know, Romans 7 or something? I mean, it's more, Romans 7 is about more than just that, but... You know, that we know was good for us, and yet we succumb to the temptations, right? Uh, so I don't know. I think and, – and I also think it's tricky. You know, sometimes I do think – I mean, I have many friends who, who have no social media and, and think that's the way to go, and I respect that and think it might be, especially for some people. But it's tricky for me as an academic mm-hmm. and as the editor of this of FPR. Ah, it's hard, right, because so much of the conversation does happen on social media, and that's, that's so, true of me as well. I, I because of exactly, podcasts, podcast, because of my yeah. own writing, I think, well, I got to promote yeah. that. But do I? I mean, maybe, maybe not just me, but the world would be better off, you know, if we all just kind of refuse to play that game. But the problem is, even if even if a tenth of the people on Twitter refuse to play it, there'd still be the ninety percent on there. Right. Right. And and so I've gone back and forth, and I, I guess right now. Uh, I think that there's a place for kind of redemptive engagement, but uh, I, I could change my mind in a couple of years, right? I I reserve the right to be wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it's a it's a right we should reserve for everybody, I guess. It's right. <laughs> another thing that the news won't really let us do, right? We um we we demand this kind of purity. Yeah. Well, we have been talking to Jeff Bilbro. His latest book, Reading the Times, a Literary and Theological Inquiry into the News, is out now from InterVarsity. There's a link to buy that on the show notes for this episode at ChristianHumanist.org. Christian Humanist Profiles is a production of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our audio editor is Britt Stack. Thanks for listening.